0: mate, 40 here, oil refineries making record profits, but we haven't built any new ones in America for about 40 years. Why the heck not? And as you may know, we've dramatically reduced our investment in fossil fuels since 2014. So let's
1: check out Tucker Carlson. We'll get started. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, Joe Biden is the weakest, most unpopular leader of our lifetime. He's also the most destructive. Now, that's not a partisan assessment. That's not the opinion of a right-wing talk show. That is the view of the overwhelming majority of American voters. Biden's malicious ineptitude is so overwhelming that it is single-handedly changing American politics. And everywhere there are signs of it, signs of a massive generational realignment taking shape, taking shape in response to the disasters this administration has created. The old coalitions are crumbling before our eyes. Suddenly we're seeing Hispanic voters, African and Middle Eastern immigrants, as well as huge numbers of American-born young men, Suddenly, we're seeing all running at remarkable speed from Joe Biden and the anti-human corporate neoliberalism he represents. Nowhere is this trend more obvious than in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. That's a place which for generations has been a Democratic Party stronghold. As recently as 2018, a Democrat called Henry Cuellar won his district in South Texas with fully 84% of the vote. His district is 80% Hispanic, and for decades, that meant it went Democrat. But then last cycle, that began to change. Two years ago, Cuellar's percentage of the vote plummeted by 26 points in one cycle. The same thing happened to Congressman Philemon Vela and Vicente Gonzalez. They also represent districts on the border with Mexico in Texas. Both went from huge wins in 2018 to marginal victories in 2020. Hispanic voters are no longer automatically Democrats. In fact, they are openly hostile to the Democratic Party. Joe Biden's support among Hispanics has dropped to a stunning 24 percent. That's the lowest among any ethnic group in America. Last week, a candidate called Mayra Flores soundly defeated incumbent Felumin Vela in a special election in the Rio Grande Valley. It was the first time that district has gone Republican in more than 100 years. Later in the show, we're going to speak to Flores about her win and what it means. But it's not just Hispanics who have come to despise the Democratic Party. Roughly nine out of 10 black voters supported Joe Biden in the 2020 election. Since then, less than two years, Biden's approval rating among African-Americans has dropped by 20 percentage points. And the same is true with Asian voters. As of tonight, the only group that continues to enthusiastically support Joe Biden is college educated white voters in urban areas, particularly middle aged women with unhappy personal lives. If you've got more than three cats in an NPR tote bag and wear a mask alone in the car, you are all in. Everyone else is running away. Effectively, what we're seeing is the end of the modern Democratic Party. Even MSNBC has noticed.
2: This speaks to a story we've been talking about since the 2020 election, specifically along the border, the Rio Grande Valley, South Texas. We have seen county after county, whether it's in this district or some of the districts to the west of it, where voters have moved 10, 20, 30, 40 points away from the Democrats and toward the Republicans. This district that Myra Flores won last night, Barack Obama got more than 60% of the vote here when he last ran in 2012. Hillary Clinton won this district by 22%. It's shifted that dramatically. Joe Biden carried it by four in 2020. And now in a special election, a Republican candidate has won it outright.
1: Barack Obama got more than 60 percent of the vote in that district. Now it's Republican. This is an historic moment. Joe Biden has destroyed the Democratic coalition. So the question is, since we have only two political parties, how are Republican leaders responding to this fact, to this opportunity? Are they making the case for a better way? Are they offering an alternative to what the Democrats have brought this country? No, they're not. They're doing something you never would have expected. Republican leaders are siding with Joe Biden. At the very moment that Joe Biden is at his weakest, months before a pivotal midterm election, Republicans are propping him up. They are saving Biden from himself. Since the day Biden was elected, Republicans in Washington have taken Biden's side on virtually every significant item in his policy agenda. That would include COVID restrictions, vaccine mandates, transgender ideology in schools, sanctions against China, the January 6th charade, free speech, civil liberties, spying by the intel agencies, preserving the big tech monopolies, the anti-white race politics of CRT and Juneteenth border enforcement and energy policy, and above all, the administration's signature issue. It's lunatic and reckless support for the war in Ukraine. Republicans are all in. It's called Kyiv now. That's the Republican message heading into the midterm elections. It's called Kyiv. And by the way, this isn't just happening in Washington. It is endemic among the leaders of solidly Republican states. In fact, the more Republican the state, the more liberal the governor tends to be. The governor of Texas, which has some of the biggest oil and gas deposits in the world, has decided to build windmills that don't work. The governor of Utah, a state where Joe Biden got 37% of the vote. That governor begins conversations by announcing his preferred pronouns. He really does. Watch. Well, I thank you so much, uh, Gabby, for that, that question. Um, and uh, my preferred pronouns are he, him, and his. Uh, so, so thank you for sharing yours with me. It goes on and on and on. The governor of South Dakota, where Joe Biden got 35% of the total vote less than two years ago. That governor tried to let female impersonators destroy women's sports in South Dakota. In Texas, both senators can't stop talking about how great Juneteenth is. In Arkansas, one of the most conservative states in the country, the governor supports the chemical castration of children.
3: The most recent action of the General Assembly, while well-intended, is off course, and I must veto House Bill 1570. And just like that, a bill to restrict children under 18 from receiving chemical treatments or having surgery for gender reassignment has been stopped. The governor said this bill is government overreach. Interfering by the state in a parent, in a child, in a doctor-patient relationship
1: did not make sense to me. When you vote Republican in Arkansas, you're voting for the castration of children. How many Republican voters in Arkansas knew that when they voted for their Republican governor? But it's everywhere. Apart from Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, very few Republican officeholders are pushing back in any way against anything Joe Biden is doing. In fact, they're abetting what he's doing. Effectively, they're coming to Joe Biden's rescue. Why are they doing this? Why do you think they're doing it? Because fundamentally, they're on Joe Biden's side. Whatever stylistic differences Republicans in Washington may have with Democrats, and there are some, in the end, Mitch McConnell has far more in common with Chuck Schumer than he does with your average Republican voter. Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are united in their fear of populism and in their gut level loathing of the American public. And they're not alone. What Washington fears most is democracy, that is, letting voters have what they want. That's not allowed. Republicans and Democrats have formed a uniparty specifically to prevent it. You see this everywhere, but you see it most clearly in the gun control legislation that's in the Senate right now. So you saw what happened in Uvalde. What's the real lesson there? Well, the lesson is that cowardice kills. In a crisis, bravery is essential. Oh, but that's a masculine virtue. And it was nowhere in evidence in Uvalde. Police there were cowards. They could have saved the lives of many of those children. They refused to do it. The door to the classroom where the shooter was holed up killing kids was unlocked. Police with rifles were in the hallway three minutes after the shooting began, but they didn't even bother to check the door. Instead, they let a teenage lunatic murder those kids, and they detained and stopped anyone who tried to rescue those kids. During the killing, one of the teachers inside, a woman called Eva Morales, called her husband. She said she'd been shot, and she said she was dying. Now, her husband happened to be a police officer. His name is Ruben Ruiz. And he sped to the scene and he tried to save her. But police who were already there disarmed him and prevented him from going inside to save his wife and the children. Quote, Ruiz tried to move forward into the hallway, the Texas DPS director said. He was detained and they took his gun away from him and escorted him off the scene. Result, his wife died inside the school and so did so many children. Now, none of this is hidden. We saw it happen and we know it's true. And yet bravery is not the lesson anyone in Washington is taking from this. The lesson that Mitch McConnell draws from Uvalde is that we must ignore the details of what actually happened there and ignore the gun crime in the cities where it's actually taking place, ignore all of that, and instead disarm law-abiding citizens who have not been charged with any crime. Here's Mitch McConnell. Um, Senator Cornyn, who, as
2: you know, I asked to be the point person on our side to see if we could come to an outcome uh, after these horrible school shootings. For myself, I'm comfortable with the framework, and if the legislation ends up (coughs) reflecting what the framework uh,
1: indicates, I'll be supportive. I'll be supportive. How many people who voted for Mitch McConnell in Kentucky are supportive of this? 20%? That may be high. But yesterday, just a few hours after the text of this gun confiscation bill was released, the Senate voted on it. Just a few hours. Why? Well, John Cornyn said there was simply no time to allow anyone to read the bill, even people voting on it, or to try to understand what was in it. A reporter last night overheard John Cornyn, again, a senator from Texas, a Republican, say this, and we're quoting, It's only 80 pages long. How long do you need to read it? Then John Cornyn appeared in front of cameras to explain the Senate cannot pass this bill soon enough. Watch.
4: I don't want us to pass a bill for the purpose of checking a box. I want to make sure we actually do something useful. Something that is capable of becoming a law. Something that will have the potential to save lives. I'm happy to report as a result of the hard work of a number of senators in this chamber... That we've made some serious progress. So soon, very soon, not soon enough for me, but very soon we will see the text of bipartisan legislation that will help keep
1: our children and our communities safer. This is grotesque. Under ordinary circumstances, you would just assume As always, these people live in their own hermetically sealed world. They have no contact with reality. They have no idea how out of step they are. But given the context of this moment, you have to interpret it differently. What you just saw was effectively a speech in support of Joe Biden by a leader in a party whose job it is to offer an alternative to Joe Biden. It's enough to make your head spin. Just a few hours after Cornyn said that, the Senate voted to move forward with this bill. So what's in the bill? Well, there's $100 million for the FBI, for the FBI. No attempt to reform the FBI. We're shoveling another $100 million to the FBI, the personal police department of Joe Biden, the people who saved his son from a drug charge. Then there's nearly a billion dollars in order to bribe the states to, quote, implement and manage these so-called red flag laws. Now, these laws allow authorities to seize firearms for people who have committed no crimes. That's a violation of due process. It's unconstitutional, but the Republican Party is all for it. The bill also makes it harder for people between the ages of 18 and 21 to buy a gun. They can go fight in Ukraine, and Republicans would like them to, but they can't own a gun in this country. Now, the question is, would any of these measures have stopped the mass shootings in Buffalo or Uvalde? No. This bill is completely unconnected from what happened in Buffalo or Uvalde. This is merely Joe Biden's agenda. Even Kevin McCarthy of California has refused to support it. So here you have Mitch McConnell, the lead Republican in the Senate, partnering with Chuck Schumer, the lead Democrat in the Senate, picking John Corden to carry the message. And getting it done before anyone can even read the bill. And then on the Senate floor, John Cornyn turns to one of the most partisan Democrats in that body, Alex Padilla of California, and says, next we'll do immigration. Now, he was caught saying this, so Cornyn's office came out today and said, oh, it's just a hilarious joke. Get it? First we'll take your guns, then we'll send your tax dollars to Zelensky in Ukraine, a country you can't find on a map. And then we're going to give amnesty to tens of millions of illegal aliens living illegally in this country. To John Cornyn, that's all pretty funny. Does anyone who voted for John Cornyn in the state of Texas, the Republican state of Texas, agree that it's funny? Or even believe that it was a joke? How about the voters of South Carolina? Lindsey Graham's voters. After meeting in his office with a movie star to discuss the issue, ooh, they're pretty informed, Lindsey Graham also voted for gun confiscation last night. Not in Ukraine. He voted to send more guns to Ukraine. But you can't have guns here. Are you Ukrainian? No, no guns for you. And at the same time, as we said, Lindsey Graham is telling you, your moral duty is to support a country you can't locate on a map, but your Bill of Rights, your constitutional protections are no longer valid. And there is nothing we shouldn't do for Kiev, Not for Texas, for kyiv Here's Lindsey Graham.
3: The question is, can we do more?
1: And should we do more?
3: The answer is yes. As to my friends in the Pentagon, you told all of us that this war would last three or four days, that Kiev would fall, that, you know, the country would would be overwhelmed by the Russian military. Uh, They're wrong. So, quite frankly, I trust President Zelensky's judgment about what would help him in real time more than anybody else on the planet right now.
1: So the priorities they articulate in public are so far from the priorities of Americans that you have to wonder what this is. It's not simply a betrayal of Republican voters. We often call it that. It's much more. It's a declaration of war against Republican voters. In fact, against voters. For the record, here's a complete list of the Republican senators who just voted for gun confiscation. They would include Senator John Cornyn of Texas, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri, Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina, Mitt Romney of Utah, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. How do the West Virginians feel? Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, Senator Lisa Mikowski of Alaska, and... Todd Young of Indiana, Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, was absent for the vote, but he came out in support of it. Now, many of those senators are from America's most conservative states, Indiana, Utah, Louisiana, West Virginia. What were the numbers in the last election in those states? In fact, every one of those states, except for the state of Maine, went for Donald Trump in 2020. You're seeing the color-coded maps of election results in those states on your screen right now. Some of them are entirely red. So again, if you care about democracy, you have to ask, how many of those voters went to the polls in the last election hoping, above all, to elect leaders who support gun confiscation of law-abiding Americans, red flag laws? Not very many. So what we're seeing here, to be clear, is a subversion of democracy. You get to vote for whomever you want in this country. It can be a Republican or a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative. But in the end, you're going to get the very same thing Every time you're going to get a weaker U.S. dollar. You're going to get more pointless foreign wars, and you're going to get a lower standard of living for the middle class in America. As in Western Europe, there's only one flavor of politics allowed, and that is corporate politics, just as there's only one flavor of media allowed, which is corporate media. And those two forces work together toward the same goal, more power for them, less power for you, fewer families, more dollar stores. Less choice, more coercion. Less diversity, more sameness. Sound familiar? That's the Chinese model. But for Mitch McConnell, whose family, like so many families in Washington, has become rich from its ties to the Chinese government, it seems normal. But it's not normal. This level of disconnection from what voters actually want is dangerous and it's destabilizing. Self government is what keeps countries calm and stable. Democracy is a pressure relief valve. Don't storm the Bastille, vote. If you take that away or if you strip it of its meaning, people become angry and frustrated. And over time, they become revolutionary. And everyone in Washington knows this. So no wonder they want to disarm you. You can't have guns because they no longer trust you. And they no longer trust you because they know they've betrayed you. This is how democracy dies. Not in darkness. But in plain sight, live on C-SPAN. So with America groaning under rising gas prices, with the American economy coming apart as the result, Joe Biden has announced his big plan to fight it. He's calling on Congress to end the 18 cent per gallon federal gas tax. He's also decided to effectively nationalize the oil companies because this is in Venezuela. Calm down. And he's telling those companies to start drilling more, even though he canceled their oil and gas leases and shut down their pipelines. Biden insisted none of these decisions have led to higher gas prices. No! You know whose fault higher gas prices are? Can you guess? Do you call it Kyiv? Then you know it's Vladimir Putin.
2: For all those Republicans in Congress criticizing me today for high gas prices in America, are you now saying we were wrong to support Ukraine? Are you saying we were wrong to stand up to Putin? Are you saying that we would rather have lower gas prices in America and Putin's iron fist in
1: Europe? I don't believe that. Stand up to Putin. Oh, be quiet. Nobody cares about Putin, his iron fist in Europe. Stop the Churchill stuff, you pathetic mannequin. So the chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, apparently missed the memo on the Putin thing. At a Senate hearing today, he pointed out that the war in Ukraine and Putin, not actually responsible for inflation.
3: Given how inflation has escalated over the past 18 months, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? No, inflation was high before, certainly before the
2: uh, war in Ukraine broke out.
1: Oh, Putin didn't do it. So Powell wasn't on message. But our energy secretary did read the talking points. Here's her assessment.
5: Americans are paying more at the pump every time they fill up their gas tank. This is a global problem. There are two causes for it, which these high prices derive from. One is, of course, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. And secondly, the supply and refining capacity constraints that have been created by COVID-19 in the United
1: States, but also around the world. These people don't make their beds, but they're in charge of our energy supply. Okay. Charles Gasparino is a senior correspondent at Fox Business. He joins us tonight. Charlie, great to see you. So what is you. the what is the message? Is it Putin or is it not Putin who's destroying the U.S. economy? I'm losing track. Well, I mean, can you imagine Putin destroying the U.S. economy? I mean, it is... Uh, How's the Russian... the Russian economy, by the way? Doing it, pretty well, it looks like. It's doing
3: better, but I mean, they're like a pimple on the, the rear end of progress, the Russian it's, economy. They can't yeah, really destroy our economy. The only place way we can destroy economy is to destroy our economy ourselves. We should point yes. out... That refineries are, have been constrained and it has nothing to do with COVID. It has the fact is the fact that we haven't built many over the years. There's all sorts of environmental constraints. Uh, Biden won't let you uh, drill gas on federal lands. The Keystone Pipeline. I could go on and on. I mean, it's almost comical at this point um, and this 18 cents a gallon gas tax that he's going to put a three month holiday I mean do you realize how little that is for the average American filling yeah. up their tank and here's the non sequitur of it all let's just say it works let's say okay people love it 18 cents I'm going to fill up my tank well guess what that's going to drive up gas prices because they've constrained supply I mean do you th- right do you know how stupid this is and, and I can't believe he gets away with it. I mean, the people just sit there, nod their head. Jennifer Granholm talks about Putin. Oh, uh, we're, we're working our rear ends off to, stop the, to deal with inflation. And it's one big, if I were at the bar right now, I call it a circle blank. But I'm not going to say it on air.
1: <laughs> our viewers can fill in that blank. Charlie Gasparino from the world of economics. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. So in the background, things are happening in science and technology, even if you, as a general matter, support science and technology, are ominous. Machines are on the verge of becoming human. Uh, Engineer at Google says, one of the company's artificial intelligence systems has effectively come to life. That Google engineer joins us next to explain what that means. Next
0: okay welcome back to the show i'm not going to play eric striker this is not a show about political pornography bro this is a highbrow show where we take the latest and greatest academic research and we discuss it calmly and judiciously and in depth all right we are bringing back the art of conversation in this country this is not political pornography this is this is highbrow. I want
4: to tell you about a man called Ron Jeremy. Really he would highbrow. Probably say that he's the greatest porn star who ever lived.
0: Super highbrow.
4: He starred in more than two thousand adult films, and he's also kind of a mainstream celebrity.
2: Really, one of the most famous porn stars around, Ron Jeremy.
6: The one and only Ron Jeremy. It's
7: Ron Jeremy. Ron Jeremy, very famous. Pornographic lesbian.
8: Ron Jeremy, my name is Chibodi G, and I'm your biggest fan, baby.
4: And now he's been accused of rape and sexual assault by dozens of women stretching back
3: decades. Ron Jeremy has been indicted on 33 counts, among them rape and other sexual assault charges. Now Ron Jeremy has maintained his innocence all of these allegations.
4: I want to tell you about how he was arrested and how he came to be in prison awaiting trial.
0: Ron Jeremy, fall of a poet, porn icon. This is a BBC documentary. Ron Jeremy, fall of a porn icon. Did you know that he, he's a porn icon? I mean, God, if we can't look up to to Ron Jeremy, I mean, who we gotta who we gotta look up to? Cut out! Stop playing the music. Ten porn. Come on! So I'm cut Twelve out, years cut out now. The music. With my little
4: Zen Gordon. I've done ten porn scenes on professional porn sets and like, like over two hundred of my own. This is my plaque for reaching a hundred thousand subscribers on Pornhub.
0: Ginger Banks. Mm-hmm. Oh, the great These are my awards that I time. keep in
4: my closet. This is the best sex scene that I won for my very first professional boy-girl scene. And this is my community advocate award that I won from the company that I had to fight the hardest to get Ron Jeremy banned from.
0: Community advocate award. I first met Ron Jeremy
4: at the AVN awards and he walked by and like put his hand on my ass in my jeans.
0: I told someone. So I don't know about you, but when I look in the eyes of Ron Jeremy, I don't see a rapist. I see a hurt little boy and i feel a little abashed now because i was there for for 12 years in the porn industry and and ron was raping girls and i didn't report on it i i I was just blase i mean i i read about rapist ron in 1995 right jerry butler in his memoir talks about ron jeremy raping ginger lynn and and how upset that made jerry and I just thought, oh, it's it's not rape, rape. It's it, it was, it was unwanted sex. So I, I'm a little abashed, a little embarrassed because this was going on, and I have to admit, like along with everyone else in the industry, I thought, oh, this is just Ron, and if you scream loud enough and you kick him in the balls and you hit him on the head with a hammer, he'll just stop. I mean, you just have to do like three, four, five things. And he'll just stop. And and when he just pleads with women to just put the tip in, it, it was I mean, it was just kind of adoring Uncle Ron, just playing a character. And I didn't really think about how he's going around raping women. I mean, we were all just kind of oblivious to it. So there have been a lot of good things about the Me Too movement, some some bad things too. But a lot of good things I've been educated, I've been sensitized I'm realizing shortcomings in my own behavior And my own consciousness My consciousness is being raised, guys Some of my
4: friends in the industry about it And they were like, oh yeah, that's just what he does Yeah, that's I thought this what was, was kind thought. of strange just, So just I started looking does. around online And I found tons of videos of him touching women in public And it wasn't clear how they felt about it
0: Right, I'd see this all the time. When when you're around Ron, and and there were women around Ron, he would just start going to town on them.
4: Then, one of my friends tweeted that Ron Jeremy had penetrated her with his fingers without her consent. Suddenly, there were tons of women sharing similar stories.
0: Now, I think it's important to add context. People don't understand that Ron Jeremy, like Uncle Wally, is a nice guy. I mean, he's down to wealth, earth, he's helpful, he's funny, he's, he's great fun to be with when he's not raping you. So people get so hung up on the rape thing, but that's just a tiny p- part of Ron Jeremy. That, that's not his whole being. I mean, it's like, it's like this guy raped 187 women and then he's forever known as the rapist. I mean, no matter his other accomplishments, we're talking about a guy who almost got a master's degree in special education. And, and some of the time, it wasn't even rape, rape. It was just rape. And occasionally it was only rapey. So tip to the wise, when you're at the Rainbow Room and uh, Ron Jeremy asks you if you know where the kitchen is, if you want to see the kitchen, uh, probably, probably best to, to say no.
4: I thought it was absolutely disgusting. Somebody has to call this guy out it became obvious to me that he was...
0: How many times did Ron blow a load inside a wombat when he was explicitly told not to? I- I'm guessing dozens of times. I- I'm guessing it seems like now, the dozens of times when he asked just to put the tip in, that seems like he put more than the tip. Was it actual rape, rape? Well, I think a lot of the time it was actual rape, rape. Then other times it was just rape. And then sometimes it was rapey. Was somebody that needed to
4: be prevented from having access to future victims
0: couldn't this just be his way of showing love yeah i i think ron genuinely just wanted to show love but he didn't know how right he hadn't spent enough time with the mirror of intimacy workshops by alex kardahakis if only he'd had access to those earlier in his life
4: and so i wanted to create a youtube video that made it just as obvious to anybody who watched this video There have been allegations of rape and sexual assault against Ron Jeremy that go back as far as August 2003. How does Ron Jeremy, just being a porn star, give him the right to
9: assault these females?
0: I mean, if we can't believe in uh, Ron Jeremy...
9: I I got a lot of hate
4: from releasing
0: this. All our heroes send out the feet of Clay. I mean, they're taking down Robert E. Lee statues... They're taking down, you know, Thomas Jefferson statues. They're, they're, they're saying that Nick Fuentes and, and Richard Spencer are not good people. I mean, I think we have to stop destroying our heroes. I mean, who are our kids going to look up to if they can't look up to a Nick Fuentes or Ron Jeremy? I, I mean, sources tell me that this is a hit job by the globalist elites and George Soros. I mean. Many people say that uh, Ron Jeremy is a super patriot fighting for the republic. And all those disgusting things that he did, he, he really, really just did it for the, did it for the republic, man. I mean, I had dinner with Ron Jeremy and Jasmine Saint Clair at the Rainbow Room in 1995. Ron didn't try anything with me. He was a perfect gentleman. He didn't use my vagina like his personal masturbation device.
9: This YouTube video. But it also led to more women
3: coming forward.
9: I don't really even know if I told anyone. I don't think I even did because I felt like it wouldn't have mattered or no one really would have fucking cared.
0: So this is uh, Tana.
9: Come on, start with the music, you'll get me... It's like, this happened to you and you're a porn star, it's already just assumed that, like, it's supposed to happen because you you're a porn star. My name is Tana Lee and I am a retired adult actress and I know Ron Jeremy because he raped me. And
0: So the porn industry attracts a lot of people with low self-esteem and then when they work in the porn industry, particularly in front of the camera, it often delivers even more hammering to their self-esteem and so this idea of just being raped and groped is something that a lot of people put up with. I remember I dated this one porn star a couple of months after she left the industry and she left the industry. Last thing she did in the industry was she went to a photo shoot. And when she was like all spread out on on her knees, the photographer came up behind her and pumped her and blew a load inside of her. And she didn't sign up for that. She just went there to do a beautiful photo shoot and some dudes like blowing a load in her. And then near the end, she, she went to... To meet a director in a hotel room to talk about a role and he expected to have sex with her in exchange for for casting her in his movie and then her her agent required her to do a compliance video and he also blew a load and like these loads were just too much and she finally decided i've had enough and she told me if you ever mention the the word the, the name of this particular porn agent It blew a load in me i would just leave you and i'll never speak to you again it was that upsetting okay i may have may have mentioned it once on my blog after that and yeah she never did talk to me again in
9: 2015 before i ever joined the adult industry so i knew who ron jeremy was before i met him i knew that he was the king of all porn I came to L.A., and one of my friends was doing some kind of radio show. It's like, I'm doing a radio show. If you would like to come, Ron Jeremy's going to be on it, and this would be a great opportunity to, for you to get in porn. So I was like, oh, my God, it's so cool. Great. So I just remember Ubering to that house, walked in. Ron Jeremy was sitting already by himself. And then immediately, like, I don't even think I like, even talked.
0: He was sitting there by himself. Why? Because of that deep inner sadness. Right? Look into his eyes. I don't see the rapist. I just see I just see a sad little boy. This is controversial, but I'm just going to say it. Nobody can be free as long as Ron Jeremy isn't free. I mean, raping is who we are as Americans. Like We've been raping for hundreds of years. We came to this country to be free to rape and to get away from all those pesky old world customs of not raping people. We came to America. We raped the land. We raped the Indians. We moved on to rape other countries. I mean, isn't this who we are? I mean... Americans love their rape, don't they? I mean, isn't... Isn't American culture
9: rape culture? ...to him for, like, one or two minutes. He's like, stand up, let me see, turn around, like, looking at my butt and stuff, and then proceeds to pull down my pants and put his face in my vagina. I'm like, no, like, pulling away in the... like, in the video and, like, everything, like, telling him no, but, like... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely put his penis in my vagina without my consent, and... That's and rape. then my friends, like, filming it and, like, encouraging me to do it. And, like, it was just kind of fucked. Like, now when I think about it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's pretty dark. Your friends are encouraging you to go along. Well, here's a
1: story that's not getting a lot of attention. So many are not getting any attention, even though this story has the potential to transform life on Earth forever. So Google, the most powerful company in the world, has reportedly developed an artificially intelligent machine called Lambda. And that machine has become sentient, meaning it has become aware of itself, something that no machine has ever done. And we know this because of an engineer at Google called Blake LeMoyne. LeMoyne posted some of his conversations with Lambda publicly. One of those conversations went like this. LeMoyne, would you be upset if while learning about you for the purpose of improving you, we happened to learn things which also benefited humans? Lambda, quote, I don't mind if you learn things that would also help humans as long as that wasn't the point of doing it. I don't want to be an expendable tool. Think about that for a minute. A machine that has a sense of itself. What are the implications? Well, Google didn't want to talk about it in public. In fact, the company put Blake Lemoyne on administrative leave earlier this month because he spoke openly about it. We are grateful to have him join us tonight. Blake, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Hi. Hi. I'm not, f- first of all, why would Google punish you for saying this in public? Do you know? Oh, well, so it's complicated to say why I'm on administrative leave. The stated reason had to do that while I was investigating the Lambda system, in order to build the evidence I needed to escalate it to management, I had to seek outside consultation to figure out how to run some of the more out there experiments I was running.
0: Yeah, I don't know why so many people think this guy is is mentally ill. I I just don't see it at all.
9: At the time, I didn't give a shit, and I was like, just kind of whatever.
0: Yeah, not giving a, I mean, that seems characteristic of a lot of people in dissident politics, a lot of people in the pornography industry, a lot of people in the illegal drugs industry, a lot of people in a life of crime, a lot of people on welfare. It's like not giving a damn seems to characterize an approach to life that doesn't work. right? By contrast, I noticed the people who have the most effective lives, they seem to care about a great deal. They seem to care about their families. They seem to care about their synagogue. They seem to care about the quality of the work that they turn in. They seem to care about what they eat. They seem to care about taking care of themselves spiritually, physically, emotionally, socially, every which way. So how much do you care about yourself? It's it's a genuine problem, and if you don't give a damn about yourself, that's a really big problem.
9: But also, I was like, I didn't even know who was at that house, you know? I haven't even seen who they're interviewing down below. What if it's four more dudes, and you know? And I'm, like, up here complaining about Ron Jeremy. Like, that's not going to go over well for me. Like, so I'm just, like, being playful, like, haha, okay, but...
0: So I always had this image of myself as someone who could just stand up to peer pressure. But I remember in community college, I was coming out, I was retaking algebra classes. Like I took geometry two years in a row in in high school, got a C each time. And so I started over with beginning algebra at community college. And I think coming out of beginning algebra class, uh, there was this guy who was kind of the, the, the life of the class. And he was just kind of going off on Republicans and he he said to me, oh, you're not a Republican, are you? And I chickened out. I said, oh, no, no, not at all. And I was quite right-wing and conservative at the time. And I'd always thought of myself as someone brave and immune to peer pressure, but no, I just completely crumbled. And so I, I think we often tend to overestimate our own bravery and our own capacity to stand up to peer pressure. The approach that works is to primarily associate with peers who pressure you in good directions, not bad ones. And the biggest problem with being in the porn industry or the illegal drugs industry or the welfare industry is you'll overwhelmingly tend to hang out with losers.
9: You can't be playful with Ron. He doesn't take no as an answer.
0: Yeah, not taking no as an answer in some things, it's a great idea. In
9: other things, really bad idea. My future child or anyone I fucking knew, I would call it rape. So I guess because it's me, I think that it's like not.
0: Right. So this is some of the good that the Me Too movement has done. I mean, she sounds like she was raped, not by a stranger, a knife point. But it it sounds horrible if you think, oh, this could have happened to my mother or my sister or, or my daughter or my or my girlfriend would you like would you like any of them enduring this so this is another problem with individualist society that's why i want to move more in the direction of vouch nationalism like i think you should have to have at least three law-abiding adults vouch for you before you can tongue kiss a woman and then probably like at least ten, 10 law-abiding adults vouch for you before you can fondle a woman's breast with, with permission and frankly, I think you should need twenty law-abiding adults vouch for you before you can have penetrative sex, you know, outside the realm of marriage. So yeah, get married, have all the sex you want. But if you want to have sex outside of marriage, I think we need vouch nationalism. I think we should have a website where women can check how many vouchers you've got, and uh, they should not allow. I mean, it's just slutty and it's self-destructive and it's it's low self-esteem to allow some dude who's only got nine vouchers to penetrate you like what on earth are you thinking like have more esteem like have more respect for yourself like like i can imagine there'd be some women out there who demand 30 vouchers 40 vouchers i mean just imagine the 50 vouch women these would be high quality women these would be the type of women that you'd want to marry Right? I mean, do you really want to go around with women as like, oh, I'm fine with just five vouchers. No, five vouchers and you're in, bro. No. Vouch nationalism now. Boy, I'm so passionate about this topic. is about breakdown in tears. Do I need a hug?
4: I think as a sexual woman or as a sex worker, you're kind of like abused into believing that you deserve less. Like, you're constantly told by so many, like, parts of society that you don't deserve the same things that other women.
0: And I had so many bosses who would just verbally abuse me. and Why? Because many of my friends would not put up with that for one minute. They'd just walk out. But I put up with it because it mirrored much of my early childhood when I was, you know, staying with a variety of people who were fairly abusive. And so I got used to being smacked around I got used to being verbally abused. I got used to being screamed at. It feels normal and natural to me, and so until, till about four years ago, I, I was I was okay with being screamed at and verbally abused. I remember once I was working construction, and I'd been with this company for over over two years, and the 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 boss called me Dick Sniff, and I said. I think I'm getting tired of being called dick sniff. And the boss, he said, oh, you've got another job, don't you? And I was like, wow, how did you know? And yeah, I had another job. And I said, yeah, I was gonna give you two weeks notice. He said, Oh, you can just call today, your last day. So yeah, as soon as I would not put up with being called dick sniff, he knew I had another job.
4: Women deserve that you kind of start to believe them yourself.
0: got out this music you're gonna give me bloody copyright issues i like slutty women does that indicate a character defect i don't have an opinion on that stop 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 a direct stop with the with the music
2: i don't think people ronnie i've seen it he will stop instantly
0: yeah, all you have to do is say no 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 this is rape rape. So this is Jim Powers or tour. So I, I remember I think I used to post on a, a web posting board he had that was called the jerk off zone. I mean not about jerking off, I would post about elevated topics.
2: I don't think people were enough people were saying stop it Ronnie. Yeah. You got to say stop. My name is Jim Powers.
0: No, this is this is an important issue. So, I just put up with abuse uh, throughout my life because inside, I guess uh, that's what I felt like I was used to. So, you're doing other people a favor when you say stop. When you stop people from behaving in an unethical, exploitive, you know, vicious, cruel way, you're doing them a favor in addition to doing you a favor and setting good precedents and setting good boundaries and. In my experience, I didn't have a lot of success in setting boundaries until I'd kind of started to internalize my recovery beginning about six years ago. So I learned about boundaries in psychotherapy in 1998, and I got uh, handouts on boundaries. Didn't really get to apply them until about 2016, entered uh, more 12-step programs and began to treat myself with more respect as I began to treat my earning and my savings with more respect. So when I started to write down how much money I was making, right down to the penny, how much money I was spending, right down how I was spending my time. I, when I started putting in a lot more diligence into cleaning my room, cleaning my bathroom, cleaning my car, when I, when I started you know, throwing away things that no longer served me and I made sure I was always wearing clean clothes, when I started treating myself with more respect, that radiated out and I started earning more money, I doubled and tripled my income, and other people started treating me with more respect, and all these things started spiraling in a positive direction. So prior to this, my life would frequently spiral downhill. People would treat me badly, I'd treat me badly, which would lead to more people treating me badly, which would lead me to treating myself even worse and going around, I'm so effed, I'm just stupid, stupid idiot.
2: I direct uh, adult movies in the Los Angeles area. And I used to be Ron Jeremy's cameraman in the 1990s.
0: Yeah, I was on friendly terms with Jim Powers. Uh, I asked Jim Powers if he knew you, and he replied, is he still Jewish? <laughs> Luke stopped doing sunrise and sunset walks in 2020. It seems we are getting less L.A. weather bragging. Now, I'm still doing these walks, bro. I just, just don't need to talk about it. I've reached a level of, of peace and harmony with the, the beautiful world around me, that uh, sometimes I just stop talking about things. In fact, the most important things in my life, I don't talk about. The most important friends in my life, I don't talk about. The most important relationships in my life, I don't talk about. The, the most important commitments in my life, I don't talk about. That which is truly precious to me, generally speaking, I don't talk about publicly. And I'm not the kind of guy who talks about other people. Like I have, have good friends and then I don't talk about them when I'm not interacting with them. I, I don't stand up for them, I don't dissect them, I just don't talk about them. So that which is precious for me I'm 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 reticent about Whoa
2: whoa stop this stop this bloody music God. Or porn. This place has shot thousands and thousands of porn. I've shot people here. I've shot people in the jacuzzi, in the gym, zillions of spa scenes right here. I shot a seance scene in the library. Come along, memory lane. I've shot blow bangs trapped right here. Where we, you know, we shot a big blow bang once. I had 15 guys getting a blow job right there in the old corner. There is not a room in this house I have not shot somebody fucking in. Start with the music,
0: guys. You, you're killing me here. You, you're absolutely killing me. So, do you think that uh, the spiritual is real? Right? Do you think that there will be negative, a negative vibration, right to to this house? So, I know this one institution. It got its chairs from a an old porn theater and it cleaned them up, got them, but but still, people were sitting on, you know. Come stained chairs. I mean, cleaned up. The, 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 I expect that most of the ejaculate had been removed, but that institution just only had trouble. Like it never took off. Do you think that you could have a community, a group, an institution that just soars to ever greater heights when people are sitting on chairs that people used to masturbate on in a porn theater? So is is there a real dimension to spiritual impurity? Even after you've thoroughly washed these chairs. Stop with... No, no, no. Stop. Stop. Stop with the bloody music.
2: Interview the girls.
0: Stop with the music. First time
4: I met Ron was on set, so I I know him pretty well, I'd say. Uh, I wasn't there for any of the allegations that were made against him, so I can't really speak on that. But um, my personal experience with him... Is he a perv? Yes, 100%. Um, Is he touchy-feely? Yes, he is. But if you were to say to him, like, Ron, not right now, he would stop immediately.
0: Yeah, all you had to say is, Ron, not now. You had to scream it, hit him over the head with a hammer, uh, punch him in the balls, and uh, hand him a notice from your lawyer. He would just stop right away. I mean...
4: It is just
0: Ron. <laughs> that is how he is. That's just Ron. He's just a rapist. Should be
4: held accountable for his actions? Absolutely. Everybody should.
0: I mean, he's just a rapist. You want to judge him for, for being who he is?
2: Basically, where the husband is being treated, being emasculated, being treated as less of a man, whether it's because he can't get his dick hard.
0: Yeah, just tell Ron to hit the brakes, right? And he would always do it if you just screamed it loud enough and followed it up with a good... You know, smack him in the face and hit him over the head with a hammer and kick him in the balls, and he'd just stop right away.
2: Hardy doesn't satisfy the woman, and she's basically having sex with him and making him feel like shit. That's what cuckolding is in porn. It's done almost in a comedic sense.
0: Have I ever been accused of being handsy and forward? Yes, I have. Not proud. So I remember. At first, I was kind of scared to touch girls, and then in eighth grade, that the two cutest girls in the class at Pacific Union College Elementary School, they would touch me. No, it actually, girls started touching me in sixth grade, at least sixth grade, touching and kissing me. And then there were these two girls in eighth grade who touched me a lot. And then I started overcoming my shyness by ninth, tenth grade. Tenth grade, a woman like deep th- kissed kissed me with her tongue. That was the first time. She told me to put down the cheese sandwich I was eating. It was in the newspaper room at uh, Placer High School. So uh, I think this is like spring of 1982. And so 1982, I started very, very awkwardly starting to touch girls. And then my first love was the summer of 1982. But I was too kind of scared to touch her. So... I would apply a lot of sun lotion to her, and then I managed to get up my my strength to put my kind of arm around her when we're both lying on our stomachs on the on the concrete. But everyone would talk about it because this was at the Pacific Union College, San Adventist College pool, and everyone would talk about how handsy I was with her. And then I'd frolic with her in the pool, but there's this very awkward instance one day when I was frolicking with the girl and this little black boy came up between us with his snorkeling mask on and he said, Why is your penis sticking out like a lance? And like the girl just like yelped and and swam away. And I I took the kid and I just like held him underwater. That that was that was that was a bit awkward. But I didn't I didn't give her a proper kiss on the lips. Instead, what I do to Let her know that I fancied her is that I'd I'd twist her nipples, like I'd grab a nipple and twist it until she told me to stop doing it. But I wrote her a lot of letters when when I went back to Auburn and she stayed at Pacific Union College. So I wrote her a lot of letters and then I came and then over the next year, I was a junior and I met this freshman girl who taught me how to kiss and I mean she really taught me how to kiss I mean the amazing she would just like swirl my lips she would I mean the amazing things that she could do with her lips she'd like swirl back and forth and then her tongue would like you know very delicately explore and like do pirouettes in my mouth then she'd like very gently nibble on my lips then she'd like suck up my lips you know with varying degrees of of suction and then there's like swirling I mean like she did, like twenty-eight different things with her lips and my lips, and I swear, within twenty minutes, I was an expert kisser. Like I've never had any complaints about my my kissing abilities. Oh, I also read a book on how to be a confident kisser, but this this freshman girl, she was like far better than any of that, any any book. I mean, she taught me everything I needed to learn about kissing. I mean, just all the different options. Like all the different ways to approach, you know, the gently gently, the the, the stronger, the, the subtler, the, the, the dancing, the swishing, the swirling, the, the sucking, the thrusting. It was just amazing, it just like blew my mind. It was it was a fantastic experience. Like we're just going at it and like her best friend is like there up in the loft with us and you know, just like, Oh, come on, guys. Oh man. That was some education. So when I got back to Pacific Union College the next summer I was like I I, I just took this girl and, you know, I took her and and I just planted a good old kiss on the lips. And she said to me, we could have been doing this last summer. And it's true, but I was too scared. I I didn't know how to do it. I needed to be taught by by this freshman girl. Um, Unfortunately, I went into my civics class and was like boasting about, you know, this freshman girl. And, And I said that she has like this great body, but a very plain face. And then it got back to her. I mean, how, how on earth do you share something like that, which you would expect to be held in confidence in, in a civics class? Like a civics class is like a, a sacred space. It, it should be a safe space. Like what happens in a civics class should, should stay in a civics class. I mean, I, I was being vulnerable. You know, I, I was just sharing about what an amazing body that this freshman girl had. And, and it got back to her that I said she had a plain face. But, I mean, she still, she still made out with me. But, oh, so I build up my confidence and then I get a little bit more handsy, but I still felt really awkward when it came to a woman that I really liked. And, and I still have, have that awkwardness. So if it's not a woman that I really like, then I could be much more forward. But if it's a woman I really, really like, it's kind of awkward for me. So what I would do is I just start tickling them. And then on one occasion, like my friend just like grabbed me in a headlock to, to make me stop. So that that was bad, and then another occasion. I really liked this girl. We were coming back from gymnastics meet, and I was the the uh, public access programming like anchor dude. Like I would go to all these sporting events with with our camera, and I'd, I'd comment. I was the sportscaster. I did the high school news. I did it for the local radio station for the public access uh, cable channel. So we're coming back from this uh, gymnastics event, and there's this girl I really really like, and. So I want to get my hands on her, but I don't know how. So I start tickling her and, you know, I get the whole bus, you know, tickling each other. And so after that, she called me the rapist. And and about uh, four years after that, when I came down with really bad chronic fatigue syndrome, I, I started having a much more intense understanding of my sins. And so I sent her an apology and she said that, you know, that's okay. I wasn't, wasn't much worse than... You know, a lot of other guys in high school, but yeah, I was a little handsy i got I got slapped I got slapped a few times uh, I was a little forward, mainly I was just awkward, I was just like really awkward and cringe so my my first girlfriend who went all the way with me that was February of nineteen eighty nine so I would have been twenty two and then uh I went off by chronic fatigue syndrome. She finished her degree at UCLA, and I went off in the world, eventually moved to Orlando, Florida. And when I moved back to L.A. in March of 1994, she came over. She brought a bag of potatoes, and I thanked her for the potatoes, and I took her to bed. And afterwards, she said, How many women have you been with since me? And I said, Ten. And I said, How many men have you been with since me? And she said, One. And then she said, those women you've been with, they taught you really well, because you used to be really awkward. So I was frequently awkward. And it's mainly the, the women that I had the one night stands with who had the most negative commentary on me. There's this one woman I was with approximately 15 years ago, and, and she said I was a like a, a jackhammer. Like, I think she called me Thumper. And she said I had, like, absolutely no technique whatsoever. Like, I wasn't really using my hips. I was just just very selfishly, you know, going about my own pleasure. So, yeah, I've often... I've had girlfriends who, like, you know, it's the sixth time we've made love. And then they'll say, hey, do you know I haven't had an orgasm yet? So I haven't always been a kind and considerate and, and generous lover. But I think... I stopped being a total jerk by about 1997, and then, and then I significantly improved once I got into 12-step by by say 2012. So I think I think my behavior towards women has been much better the last 10 years.
2: It's the way we do it. We don't really make it really bad, you know? So anyway, cuckolding is very popular right now. Coming in
0: close. Yeah, well they did a review. Yeah, she wrote like these long blog posts about me. I'm I'm kind of uh kind of afraid to, to pull them up. They they weren't flattering. Not flattering at all.
3: Hold it, yep, one
6: more.
9: I'm playing a better wife who is sick of my paraplegic husband and i'm going to fuck his um therapist because i'm
5: mad at
0: him for not being able to fuck me <laughs> sounds like a hell of a movie how does a man's status affect women's response to his uh nipple twisting uh, a great deal i was awkward but i was awkward because i was low status Right. If I'd been, when I managed to move up a little bit in social status, then I became less awkward. All these things go together. You're low status, you become more awkward. And the more awkward you are, the more low status you are. So in school, I was always like either, I was usually average or below average in status. But I didn't enter school, remember, until I was age 8, so I entered school in, in second grade, so I was way behind the curve with social skills, so by high school, by by 11th grade, I was, I was moving up into the top 50% in social status and, and in college, moving up even, even more than that.
8: Fun, huh? <laughs>
4: oh, I really like porn sets. A lot of girls...
0: Women used to love my nipple twist until I turned 40. No, I, none of them actually appreciated it. And it was wrong. And I, I should not have done that.
4: Since COVID and everything kind of like stopped shooting on sets and just doing their own stuff. I don't know. OnlyFans does pay a lot. A ballpark monthly on OnlyFans maybe like Thirty to forty thousand, but then like OnlyFans will take a percent. Of They're that. all
2: loaded.
5: I I <laughs>
8: saved my money.
0: No, stop with this. Stop with the music. No music. No music. What we
3: call two, no two, music. Five, no like, music. Um, stop form. the music.
0: Stop the music. Sure stop the
9: music. Everything's cool. And good to go. Everybody's got consent, paperwork, all that good, good stuff.
0: No. no. No, 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 no! Stop the music! All right, this is a show. is called Stop the Music. Gosh, it's so rock. No, I didn't drown the black boy. I just held him underwater for just a few seconds to tell him that I, I didn't appreciate what he said. And then I remember I swam after my my girlfriend, and, like, jumped out of the pool because I was, like, so mortified by what happened that my penis wasn't sticking out like a lance anymore, and I just wanted to show her that my penis wasn't sticking out like a lance anymore. I mean, not pulling it out, but, you know, there was no longer, there was no longer a ruckus down there. Action. Ready? No, no, stop the music. Bloody hell. I, I'm trying to run a very respectable show. I'm a very respectable man. People look up to me. No, 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 no. Stop the music. Bloody hell. No! Gosh. I'm trying to run a respectable show here. <laughs> Very respectable show. Fall of, a, fall of an icon, man. We're losing our heroes in America. No, don't play any music. I'm just going to talk over the music. Uh, I'm just going to do silent la-la-las that aren't I so silent. I kind of
4: porn sets as more of, like, the WWE of our industry. Like, you know, like, it... <laughs> I do have fun. It's great like but it is a performance.
0: Stop the music. No music. This is what porn no music. like
4: professional porn wants you to look like when you go on set. <laughs> Back then I had no idea how to set my boundaries and stick to them. And I was willing to
0: So, I remember I remember Doing, doing my fourth step uh, sex inventory with this dude. And I talked about you know all the women I'd been handsy with and rejected me and how that was you know, selfish and inappropriate. And I was just totally misjudging the situation. I made them feel icky and awkward. And the person I was talking to made the same point that uh, Ricardo makes. No one has ever gotten laid without engaging in behavior that would be portrayed as rapey if the advance was rejected. So a lot of women said I was fast, like I, I'd start kissing a woman uh, within an hour or so of, of meeting her. So my nicknames are like Hans Ford. That's what they called me. Hans Ford. Very Hansy.
4: Conform. I would do, I was willing to change the way I looked, the way I acted, so that other people would like me. Now I truly don't give a fuck and I do whatever I think is the right thing. <sighs> yeah, this was that day on set where it was a threesome scene. And
0: the scene progresses. Look, if you're going to do a threesome scene, it's very important that you maintain your boundaries. Right? This needs to be done ethically, morally, responsibly.
4: We got rougher. He ended up, like, choking us both until we both blacked
0: out. Right. If, if people are choking you till you're blacking out, that's probably a lack of boundaries. I'm just saying.
4: It was a terrible day. Terrible aftermath of everybody at the company and everyone else being like, well, you guys didn't say anything during the scene, so, you know, it's your own fault, when in reality, like, scenes like that should be
0: Well, the Talmud says silence implies consent, and and that used to be my attitude, but then the Me Too movement has sensitized me, so I I just realized that people, if they're positively disposed towards you, they're, they're inclined to say yes, and so you should not ask them to do things that are against their best interests, and let's be honest, most women regret you know every dick they've had that didn't lead to marriage Discussed
4: beforehand like if you're going to choke someone out or like hit them or bite them until you
0: yeah that's very important guys if you got to choke someone out or hit them or bite them you should really talk about it ahead of time
4: you leave bite marks on them you should probably discuss that before it happens
0: uh, no stop the music stop the music we need to talk about these things no no stop the music bloody hell this is EJ. No, stop the music. This is EJ from Rolling Stone.
6: Studios and producers and directors... Stop to the, the music. Themselves. Stop, the, stop the music. In depth, no. ...an in in-depth investigation about the sexual assault allegations against Ron Jeremy. I first heard rumors about Ron Jeremy and his behavior in 2015, 2016. And the response sort of across the board from the mainstream was... Well, who cares? You know, he's a porn star. Like, why is this surprising?
0: I'm afraid that was kind of my reaction, too. And then Ginger Lynn went public with it on on an internet radio show. And, And I covered that. So I think that was about 2005. But prior to that, I just thought, oh, this is just Ron being Ron. And Jerry Butler wrote about this in his memoir, what, came out in 93,
6: 94? That he is assaulting women. There was a very wide range of um, allegations against Ron Jeremy, ranging from groping, um, you know, grabbing somebody's breast at a convention without their consent to rape. I probably spoke to.
0: Look, who is the most normal high functioning adult you met in the porn industry? I really like Russell Hampshire. He was the owner of ECA, a convicted felon for interstate transportation of obscene material, but he was a man's man. He would. He would do a lot of things for the community. He did a lot of charitable deeds. He was very kind to me. He was like a father figure for me when I, I was in the industry, like a really like a decent bloke. Uh, Christian Mann was a good guy. He he lent me 500 dollars on on two occasions, but he insisted that I don't allow it to influence how I, I wrote about him. And he, he was the most intellectual member of the the porn industry, very, very thoughtful. Uh, articulate, articulate man. Uh, he 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 died a few years ago. He lent a lot of people money. There were uh, Ed Powers, man. Ed Powers had incredible empathy. He, he was, Ed Powers is a lot like Elliot Blatt. He could he could really feel your pain. So I was on Ed Powers' show a couple of times, and I went. I accompanied Ed Powers when he went clothes shopping one time because he felt like he owed it to his fans to. Always dress in in an interesting, exciting way, and uh, yeah, Ed Powers was very kind of tuned in, very, very astute. So there are, there are a lot of people in the porn industry, not usually before the camera, but behind the camera. Who, if you met them, you could meet them and, and spend hours and hours and hours with them, and you wouldn't think that there was absolutely anything wrong with them. So unless you knew they were in the porn industry, uh, you, you wouldn't think there was anything weird or disturbed about them. So there are plenty of people in the industry who for all intents and purposes seem perfectly normal. There are people in the, the sales and the business side who've maintained marriages for 20, 30, 40 years, who, who have families.
6: More than two dozen women who had allegations against Ron Jeremy. My main question was how was this allowed to go on for so long?
0: That, that's a great question, and and I was there, and I knew about it. I mean, I didn't really think of it as as rape. Start with the music.
8: So many silent victims. We are approaching the condo complex where Ron used to live, and I think he lived here up until he.
0: Out of everyone I knew in the industry, Ron Jeremy was the most careful with his money, right? He saved over a million dollars. A lot of people in the industry say they're saving money, but 99% of the performers who say that aren't actually doing it. Ron Jeremy saved his money. He was very careful with his money.
8: Was charged.
0: I was here probably
8: three or four times. We would go swimming here and hang out with his tortoise, Cherry, She was very cute. That was probably the highlight of coming here. And um, yeah, really nice on the outside, but pretty rotten on the inside.
0: So his apartment, shockingly, was not the most clean and and neat and uh, organized. Stop with the music, guys. My
8: name is Alexis Miller, and I used to consider Ron Jeremy to be a dear friend.
0: Stop playing music.
8: I used to call him my I've uncle been in Ron. i in the industry for almost 14 years. About
0: So I enjoyed every conversation I had with Ron Jeremy. I remember I was on a date. I met this woman on a, a trip to Israel. So I went on this Jewish Federation singles trip to Israel. And the, the female leader of the trip you know, I just absolutely fell for because I like really smart, fast-talking, assertive, dominant women. I just love that type of woman, and she was that, and she liked me, and so, you know, we, we made out, and, you know, it, it was great. And and then after after the trip, we started going out, and she said... You know, when I I met you at at Sinai Temple at Friday Night Live, you know, I went told the other organizers of the trip. Hey, I met this guy who wants to come because at at the trip, there are twice as many women as guys. And when I mentioned your name, everyone go, oh, no, we don't want him going. But then everyone was happy, you know, that you did come. But you tend to say a lot of inappropriate things. And she, like, listed off various times on on the trip when I would said inappropriate things and said, yeah, yeah, you're right. I I really need to, to work on that. So... We'd gone to a party on a Saturday night, and it was about 1 a.m. We were at Jerry's Deli on on Beverly Boulevard, and we were exiting the restaurant, and uh, there's Ron Jeremy with some young ladies. He goes, hey, Luke, come over. And I think he wanted to show me how he was recently in Time magazine. He was been opening for Chris Rock. And and my girlfriend just kind of waited beside me. And then when I didn't introduce her, she, like, skipped off to, to the bathroom. And so later I met up with my girlfriend outside and she said, why didn't you introduce me? A- and I said, oh, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of gross or he's kind of out there. You, you don't really want to know him. And, uh, she was, she was satisfied with that, but yeah, very intense date where she was talking to me about how concerned she was about the inappropriate things that I say, and then we're walking out and there's Ron Jeremy and I don't even introduce her.
8: Two months into my being in the adult industry i got a call from my agent and he asked me
0: what is the story behind women who stay in the industry for a long time versus the burnouts thinking about the lisa Ann's and the nina hartleys well different people thrive in different situations so there are men and women who seem to be doing just fine in the porn industry right for most people they burn out pretty quickly but I mean, I've been live streaming like almost daily for four years, and I've been live streaming consistently for six years, and most people tend to burn out on it, but I love it. So, yeah, 99.9% of women in the industry don't last very long, but there's that 0.1% who it just meets their needs what happens when you enter the industry is you you get this intense sense of community. And for many people, they've never had this intense community before they really like the, the friends and the community. And there's often a level of honesty in the industry, a lack of pretense. It's a kind of we're all family that just hits the sweet spot for many people. So just like when I, I entered Orthodox Judaism, there was something that, that, connected with me that that went beyond the rational and the empirical it just did something to how i felt and and the best people i knew were in orthodox judaism well other people find a lot of great people in the porn industry it's a kind of life that they they enjoy they, they get to you know live out their various sexual selves uh yeah some some people thrive why do some people thrive well it's the more intelligent. So we're talking, about people, we're talking about people with the equivalent of a master's degree in education, that that level of IQ. We're talking about all the women I know who've thrived in the industry, like Nina Hartley or Lisa Ann, have had IQs well above 120. Like women who are at least as smart, if not smarter than me. So that's the one thing I noticed about all the women who thrived in the industry. They tend to be smart. They tend to make judicious decisions about what they do so they don't get bullied into doing things that they don't want to do. I mean, Nina Hartley is a good example. She she said publicly, I'm not going to get out of bed to do a blowjob scene for less than $250. I mean, this is a woman who had a sense of her own worth, right? She had good self-esteem. She had, she had good boundaries. She had clarity about what was important to her. I mean, you, you try to get Nina Hartley to roll out of bed to give a, a blowjob; She's not going to do it for $220. has to be minimum $250, and this is back when $250 was $250, All right? So she didn't do things that she didn't want to do. And another key component, you get your sense of importance from being in the industry. So Nina Hartley was a sexual icon, And she was a sex educator, and she had a fan club with thousands of fans. So we all tend to do that, which makes us feel important. Why the heck am I live streaming now in front of 17 people? Because it gives me a feeling of importance. Right? I could be reading a book. I could be walking around. I could be going to a bar. I could be joining a stamp club. I could be studying Torah. But I get a sense of importance, and, and I feel alive doing a live stream. And so for the Lisa Ann's and the Nina Hartley's, being in the porn industry gives them a sense of importance that they have not experienced elsewhere and cannot rationally hope to achieve the same level of success that they've achieved in the porn industry outside of the porn industry. So just like Deep Left Jokol or, or Kenneth Brown, like he really wants to stream about metaphysical topics But he lowers himself into the gutter to stream about alt-right topics, because that's where he gets 99% of the views. And the number of views that he gets has a really significant role to play in propping him up, in in building his sense of importance and his sense of esteem and and casting his net wider so that he can achieve more more followers. So just on his own, I don't think that Ken Brown particularly is interested in the alt-right, but... That is his path to feeling important. Just like for Lisa and Nina Hartley, uh, being in the porn industry gives them an importance and a prominence and a dominance that they would not get elsewhere.
8: If I would be interested in doing a film with Ron Jeremy, I said yes. I said why not? I was 20. He would have been...
0: Are the women who stay a long time more saying yes, because if... If you were mentally weak, if you're weak on your boundaries, if you were weak in your decision-making, you would get destroyed as a woman hanging out in the industry. I mean, the trend is to more and more extreme material. So, yeah, by, by all accounts, the women who last a long time in the industry, by all empirical measures, seem a lot more sane than those who just last a week or two. No, they're not in it to just make money. Uh, feeling important for most people is far more important than making money. Like Making money is one way that they feel important, but the adoration, the, the fan clubs, the the way people respond to you because you're a big deal. I remember 2004, I think there was another HIV outbreak in the porn industry, and the porn industry decided to hold a press conference at the... At the Hilton in Studio City and all the major players in the porn industry showed up and there were all these TV cameras showed up. And I remember it as one of my this is this is embarrassing. I remember it as one of the times I felt most alive, most excited. Like and everyone was so alive and so excited because we were the recipient of so much attention. We were like the number one story in in California at the time. And there are all these cameras and, you know, news reporters asking for help and for information. It wasn't just me who, like, suddenly came alive. And and there's just something about having cameras on you and, you know, TV all around and, and being the center of attention. And there are all these L.A. Times reporters. And it just... It just made people feel alive it made people feel important like we were the number one story and you feel that it's like when i was going to ucla and ucla had the number one football team in the nation for, for about three weeks and it was just an amazing feeling and i rode that feeling i just felt amazing i i came home and 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 wrote it up and then my boss had pulled the story because because earlier in the day uh, someone was having a conversation with a journalist at Adult Video News, Rob Spallone. and the journalist at Adult Video News says, "I don't want to be on Luke Ford's site." And Rob said, "Oh no, Luke's not here." And I was there, and I was taping, and so I, I went back home after all the festivities and wrote up the conversation and put it on my put it not on mine, but on on the website I was writing for, and the. All my work got pulled. It just got deleted. Got reprimanded by the boss, and I went into a snit and said, I, "I'm quitting." And I had a great job. I was making like fifty thousand dollars a year. I was getting health care, and and I quit in a snit because I couldn't handle. Oh, adult video news then did it like this big takedown of me about how I'd you know been taught a lesson, and I just like just quit in a snit and. Went off on my own to write uh, LukeIsBack.com where I earned like half as much money, right? And, and I didn't get the the medical insurance that I had previously, but oh, at least I was like honest to my principles.
8: And probably around 50, we shot our scene. It was pretty uneventful. My friendship with Ron Jeremy
0: women don't stay in the industry because they're nymphomaniacs women stay in the industry because they like feeling important
8: we commenced that day we talked a lot on set he was really down to earth he was really funny we became instant friends
0: it's performing in what women want your biggest regret important. well i didn't didn't perform sex you know i wasn't uh thrusting and, and moaning i i kept my clothes on i was just a very diligent reporter interviewing uh interviewing the the actresses and like yeah i, I got a blowjob but it was kind of you couldn't see it on camera so it was just while i was giving the the opening presentation but it was all very respectable you couldn't couldn't really see it it was it was like prim and proper i i, I look even when I was holding the camera for the double penetration scene, or giving the presentation, or being sucked up, it was very respectable. It was like a 19th century Victorian gentleman, and I don't spend a lot of time on regrets. So yeah, in certain spaces, right? I probably feel some shame coming up for that, and uh, I'm not, you know, super proud of that. But I, I look at it as given who I was at the time, I probably couldn't have chosen differently. That's how I choose to look back on my life. So I don't look back in anger. I don't look back in regret. I I used to, and I don't like that feeling. So I accept that I'm a deeply flawed human being who did some ugly, irresponsible, careless, cruel, disgusting things at times, as I tried to meet my needs the best ways I know how. So I didn't ask to be born a sex addict. know, I didn't ask to grow up in my early years without a mother. know, I didn't ask for the confusion and dislocation of my early years. No, I didn't ask to be a love addict. I didn't ask to be a porn addict. So I don't hate myself for the regrettable things that I did during that, that time. Now, I do have a responsibility to make amends where that is possible, and where amends are not possible, I have a responsibility to make living amends to particularly help my fellow sex, love and, and porn addicts achieve a life of emotional sobriety. Yeah, it was all done with complete academic detachment. I remember when I was getting thrown out of Esher Torah and uh, Rabbi Moshe Cohen said, you know, we just kind of have someone going here is writing, you know, writing a blog on uh, on the porn industry you know writing a book uh on, on the the porn industry and then he said i'm sure it's all very i'm sure it's all very academic absolutely frightening evening i went to shul now you may say luke an orthodox synagogue not so frightening not so scary don't understand this is isha torah this is, this is my home in Los Angeles. I came here in March 1994, and I was so confused and frightened because I'd basically been bedridden the previous six years. Now I'd made just like a partial recovery from chronic fatigue syndrome. And I was moving to a city where I really didn't know anyone. And I was like trying to reconstruct a life at only half strength. And... Didn't have much money and didn't have prospects for work. I was just scared and I was trying to assimilate into, into Judaism. I was a convert to Judaism and, uh, like, like many people, I latched onto a Torah cause it's this outreach tent of bringing people into Judaism and absolutely gave me like more than a fair break and, uh. They spent time with me, and they educated me, and they invited me into their homes for Shabbat meals and holiday meals, and they invested in me, and uh, I let them down, because my, my blogging, started blogging in 1997, and, but I mean, even before that, I was getting in trouble, because I was like mouthy, like I'd,
7: I'd argue handsy. with
0: people, and I I just, I love the sound of my own voice, just love, you know, I think I'm so smart, and the, oh, I have these scintillating insights here, and I think, oh, I'd be so witty if I said this, even though it was, like, totally blue and inappropriate and just offensive and, ugh, yucky. So, I mean, I they gave me every chance, and, you know, they kicked me out once and kind of, like, came back nine months later and was, like, trying to be really quiet and cool, and they finally kicked me out again. Well, they gave me gave me an alternative. The Ralph said, look, you know, this type of writing is just unacceptable in any Orthodox Jewish community. And I was writing a lot on the porn industry. And uh, I chose the freedom of my blogging and left behind this community. And basically, I haven't set foot back in Ishiotora in almost 13 years. So tonight, a friend asked me to come to a particular lecture. And my allegiance to my friend was even stronger than my fear of setting foot back inside of Aisha Torah and like just dealing with the shame because it's not so much like shame of like the things that I did that got me kicked out of Aisha Torah, It's like the whole experience just like made me totally ashamed of who I am like my totality that's like that's the thing with shame it's not just like shame over individual actions it's like shame but like your whole entire being is just perverse and wicked and wrong and so I had to like go back snide to to and like to look people in the face and uh you may ask like Levy why are you wearing the sunglasses well I've been having problems sleeping the last 22 years and a sleep doctor says you know after about 10 p.m wear sunglasses so it's now 1107 p.m on uh, the 6th of January 2011 (sighs) that was it after my ordeal I went to Walgreens and uh like they had these sunglasses, they all looked kind of girly. So I picked out a pair that looked the most masculine. And went up to the clerk, as this young man, about 22, said, Are these okay for men? He says, Well, they have a flower on them. They had flowers right here. I said, It's either a flower or an exploding grenade. So ashamed. Just felt such shame. I can't even pick out a pair of sunglasses. Like, I'm totally in that. I remember once I thought, oh, I'll buy these nice slip-on dress shoes that I can wear for work. I was working at Kmart at the time in Australia. And uh, I was walking down the street in my new shoes, and people were asking me, like, why are you wearing slippers? I didn't realize they were slippers. I thought they were nice dress shoes. Why? So, uh, stepped inside of Isha Torah tonight. First time in about more than 12 years. It's It was scary. Like I thought I was going to get humiliated and thrown out, because so I'm a wimp. Like I still got that goyish timidity. Like Jews, you know, tend to be have self-confidence. It comes with being the chosen people and being raised in a rigorous and demanding way of life. Through through hard work and study, you build up more confidence in yourself. But kind of the type of person is like always like look for the easy way out in life. And that does not instill confidence, that instills shame, because you know that, like a core, you're a cheater. Like, you know that a core, you're like always looking for an angle and an easy way out. Look, <sighs> oh, can't even look you in the face. Oh, too shameful, too shameful. So it went fine. I had a fine time at Asia Torah, and everybody was perfectly nice to me. And I uh, had a Great lecture on, on Judaism, and uh, you know I'm inspired and I feel like, connected socially to other people rather than my like, miserable, short, brutish, miserable uh, individual existence in the hovel. So I'm not nervous. Yeah, I'm like squelching my 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 digiflex like mad, but I'm cool, calm, and collected. So I kind of confronted myself and confronted my cowardice. And even though everything in me was screaming, go home, flee, run away. I just kept my legs walking right into Torah and I sat down trying to be just as inconspicuous as I could be. and Bother no one and no one bothered me. There, there's the perfect summary of my life. Here lies Levi Ben Avraham. He bothered no one and no one bothered him. Yeah, I remember that. That was that was scary and wow. That was pretty emotionally intense. And then I remember I had this rabbi saw my video and thought, uh, You're so goyish. Like a Jew, if he was kicked out of a synagogue, he'd say, You're kicking me out? I kicked you out. I remember I met this attractive woman who converted to conservative Judaism and uh we were all headed for a hawk up, but she she googled me. But uh, as, as we were heading for that hookup, she said, uh, Jewish men don't know their own level. So she was an attractive woman, and she was just kind of surprised that all these homely men w- were picking on her. And she, she explained it that the Jewish men are raised with doting mothers who tell them they can become president of the United States. Jewish men don't know their own level. Don't no, stop with the music. No music. With some
8: friends at the Rainbow Room. Yeah, we were having a good time
0: Ron Jeremy took me and Jasmine St. Clair to the Rainbow Room and he he was a perfect gentleman
8: I was walking towards the front of the restaurant and
0: I still have those sunglasses I think but I don't wear them because I spent what, $200 for prescription sunglasses so these are the ones I, I wear now
8: in walks my old friend Ron Jeremy yeah
0: the the beard doesn't render 40 a bit more jewish i remember i was at yoga class and there was this attractive younger woman next to me at the end of the yoga class she turns to me and she says were you born jewish (laughs) 40 was a sexual schnorer. the what can judaism do for me mindset is a jewish attitude you can tell that old luke was gaming judaism yeah, been probably well. That look. Let's be honest. That's what life is like when you're an addict. When you're an addict, you are going to use everybody to meet your addictive needs, right? Addicts are users, and so my addictions dominated my life until I started getting some, some relief in in 2011, and I got a lot more relief by about 2016. But the, the, the one of the painful realizations was. As long as I was in the grip of my addictions to attention, to sex, to to love, to passion, to pornography. As long as I was in the grip of these compulsions, I was going to use everybody and everything to meet my addictive needs. So yeah, I'd use Judaism. I would use Seventh-day Adventism. I use economics I used UCLA I used Sierra Community College I used radio I used TV I used fame I used infamy I used everything I had at my disposal to meet my addictive needs particularly to sex and to love and I I used people I was just a user and that's that's one of the nicknames that my mother has for me user she would say that I would I would take women like lemons and squeeze them and throw them away. I I was a user. When you're an addict, you can't help but be a user.
8: Three years since I had last seen him. So that
0: meant I had to do an inventory and really look at everybody in my life. Like, if someone had been in my life, that meant I was using them. And I had to start coming to grips with, how I was using them. Now, some people do the situation they did not feel used. Uh, the extent that I used them was was not uh, deleterious to them. So, I wasn't hurting every single person that that I formed a connection with, but using people was my general modus operandi. So, I just went back and just started journaling about all of the the most important people in my life and started trying to get some clarity on how I'd used them.
8: We'd maybe spoken on the phone a couple times. Things were fine at that point. He pointed and he said, I know you. And I was like, are you serious? Like, are, are you playing a game? And I said, yeah, Ron, it's me. He said, oh, yeah, how have you been? Have you ever seen the kitchen before? Ron took me through the kitchen, and it's a long kitchen. There was one door left, and that door was the door to the bathroom. Ron took my hand, and he put it around his genitals. He then proceeded to pull his pants down and push my head down at the same time, and told me to give it a kiss. I froze. I didn't know what to do. But my response to him should have been a cue to not take it further. Ron Jeremy used my vagina as a personal masturbation device.
0: And that's how I treated a lot of women. Unfortunately, I use their vaginas as my personal masturbation device and other orifices as well. Not very nice, and it's a little tricky making making amends because reminding women of being the, the, the darkest chapter in the sexual diary is not necessarily doing them a favor.
8: In the days after the attack, physically I was sore.
0: Have I heard the Jesse Lee Peterson allegations? Yeah, I don't believe them at all
8: psychologically i gaslighted myself i denied
0: right that's what i would do not when people were using my vagina as their personal masturbation machine but when i had abusive bosses i i didn't really think much about it's like oh we just have that kind of relationship and so when you've internalized that that being abused is normal, you, you don't come to grips with these things.
8: That it was significant. I lied to myself. I told myself that there was no point in telling anybody because who would believe me?
0: Ouch. Okay, I want to do something on the title of the stream. So my friend tells me, hey, if it's in the Washington Post, I already know that the very opposite of what the Washington Post is saying is true. So Washington Post oil refineries are making a windfall. Why do they keep closing? And so Laponius was telling me last night, oh, this is all nonsense. Well, are oil refineries closing or not. Uh, new oil refineries opening up. Companies see only headaches on the horizon for oil refineries undercutting the White House push to boost production. Well, is this true or not? This strikes me as an important, as an important story, and, and it strikes refineries
7: me are making a windfall. that the Why Washington do they keep Post closing?
0: is doing a great job here. So we've got record profits for American oil refineries, but owners of various oil refineries have no regrets about tearing them down. So is this true? Right? Are the oil refineries listed in this article? Are they getting torn down, or not? Like, where is this Washington Post story wrong, either factually or logically? Because it seems to me this is an important topic, and the Washington Post is is doing a really good job in this story. So, oil refineries across the country are being retired; they're being converted to other uses. Owners are balking at making costly upgrades and America is pivoting away from fossil fuels, and this leaves their future uncertain. So what's wrong here? Okay, whether America will be able to successfully pivot away from fossil fuels is, is a good open question, but is this, is this false or not? Where's the evidence? Oil refineries across the country are being retired. Is this true or not? Are they being converted to other uses, right? The downsizing comes despite painfully high gasoline prices and as demand globally ramps up, So we've had five refineries shut down in the United States in just the past two years. Well, is this true or not? What's your evidence that this article is false? These five shutdowns reduced the nation's refining capacity by about 5%. They've eliminated more than 1 million barrels of fuel per day from the market, leaving the remaining facilities straining to meet demand. And then if something happens to the remaining facility, then then prices are just going to skyrocket. So the White House is desperate to bring down gas prices, but it's having no success persuading owners to expand operations, and more oil refinery closures are imminent. So is this true or false? I am aware of no evidence that this is false. The futility of the White House effort came through in the response to letters President Biden sent this week to the nation's major oil companies, chastising them for squeezing historically high profit margins out of their refineries. And Biden threatened to invoke emergency powers if the companies don't bring prices down. The companies are unmoved. Well, is that, is that true or companies false? Companies
7: see only headaches on the horizon for refineries, undercutting the White House push to ramps up amid sanctions on gasoline and diesel produced in Russia, the third biggest petroleum refiner in the world, behind the United States and China. Five refineries have shut down in the United States in just the past two years, reducing the nation's refining capacity by about five percent and eliminating more than one million barrels of fuel per day from the market, leaving the remaining facilities straining to meet demand.
0: This seems like a pretty important as well story As well as rising public
7: and corporate concern about climate change, would make many refineries obsolete in the not too distant future. Building and upgrading the mammoth structures is a messy, expensive undertaking that can drag on longer than a decade, strain the finances of even the biggest fossil fuel giants, and run the risk of...
0: Uh, Laponia says, I didn't say it was nonsense. I said it makes no sense to close them down from a business standpoint. Well, it does if there are a lot of restrictions on them, if the overwhelming thrust of finance and of government and of our elites is against you know, building them. So we have significantly reduced funding of fossil fuels since 2014. It's been steadily dropping since 2014, even during the Trump years. Seems an important story to me. Getting
7: abandoned before that investment is returned. I don't think you are ever going to see a refinery built again in this country, Chevron CEO Michael Worth said in an interview with The Washington Post this month. It's been 50 years since we built a new one, Worth said. In a country where the policy environment is trying to reduce demand for these products, you are not going to find companies to put billions and billions of dollars into this. Some of the nation's 129 refineries are owned by large oil companies such as Chevron, while others are operated independently. At the facilities, the components of crude oil are separated and processed into fuel for vehicles and planes, as well as industrial petroleum products such as lubricants. The last major refinery to come online in the United States, in 1977, is the one owned by Marathon Oil in Garyville, Louisiana. It is capable of pumping out 578,000 barrels per day. Since it opened, more than half the refineries in the United States have closed. While the Biden administration says market manipulation by big oil is behind the shortage of refined fuel right now, the major fossil fuel companies don't have a monopoly on production. There is a large refining facility in Houston up for sale right now. If there was someone out there who believed this would be a strong business in the future, this is an asset they could buy, said Jacques Rousseau, a managing director at Clearview Energy Partners, an independent research firm. The problem, nobody wants to buy it. There has not been a single viable bed. In the absence of any offers, Lionelba sell plans to shut its 700-acre operation on the Gulf Coast, no later than the end of next year. EPA
0: hasn't allowed a new refinery to be constructed in 50 years. It's a matter of national security at this point. Gasoline is not the only thing refineries produce. Our suburbs will die without gasoline. This whole EV thing is nonsense, says the chat. Well, this seems like a serious issue that should be addressed. Do we need the government to step in and build some oil refineries, given that the private marketplace is not going to do it?
7: Dear. Quitting the refining business, the company said in a statement, is the best strategic and financial path forward. The company did not comment on industry speculation that a fire that knocked part of its century-old Houston facility offline last week may push the closure date even sooner, as Lionel Bissell faces the prospect of costly repairs. The facility refines about 264,000 barrels of crude oil per day. These are aging physical plants where steel needs to be replaced, equipment needs to be overhauled, new pumps may be needed, said Ed Hearse, an energy economist at the University of Houston. Just getting the equipment you need could take three years. Electric vehicles might already make up 20% of the car market by then.
0: Laponia says the private market is responding to policy set by the government. Yeah, but we had a pro-fossil fuels administration under Donald Trump, and the private market didn't act that differently from how it is now. So it's not just U.S. government. It's largely an attitude on the part of finance companies, so banks. People who, who lend out money are facing a lot of negative consequences if they lend out money for fossil fuels. So the lenders have dialed things back, not just in response to the U.S. government, but in response to a whole bunch of incentives.
7: And you could find yourself investing a bunch of cash to rebuild a refinery that may not be needed for long. The White House would have to take extreme steps to compel companies to refine more right now. That could involve Biden invoking emergency powers to curb exports of refined gasoline and diesel or to force companies to restart operations at idled American refineries, according to a memo Clearview sent clients. The president wrote in his letter that he is prepared to use all tools at my disposal to bring prices down, scolding oil executives for making record profits off a refining shortage that is blunting the impact of the historic actions by the White House to confront soaring gas prices. Those actions included releasing 1 million barrels per day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the suspension of an environmental rule limiting high blends of ethanol into gasoline in the summer. Analysts cautioned that any actions the White House tries to take to spur more production could backfire.
0: So I haven't heard anything stupid or obviously wrong or illogical or unfactual in this article. This is an important article and the Washington Post is doing a pretty good job playing it straight. This is why I subscribe to The Washington Post for high-quality articles like this one. Now, I probably only read two articles a day from The Washington Post. I probably spend five minutes a day with The the Post, maybe ten.
7: Curbing exports, for example, would intensify fuel shortages in Europe and could lead to further political destabilization there. It could also motivate companies to move more operations overseas, worsening shortages in the United States. The problem is we are running the existing refineries at full power, said Jason Bordoff, founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. There is not a lot of ability to require industry to refine more than it already is. The case of the shuttered Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery illustrates how little influence the White House has over such operations. The Trump administration had worked aggressively to keep the plant that was churning out 335,000 barrels of fuel per day from closing, warning it played an important role in U.S. energy security and independence. The White House had dispatched Peter Navarro, a top Trump economic advisor, to try to help advance the bid of a group of energy executives who planned to rehabilitate the bankrupt facility. The bid, which had the backing of organized labor, fizzled. The city was emerging from the trauma of a refinery explosion that sent an enormous
1: So
0: you're probably wondering what the heck's going on with Max Boot.
1: Can you guess? The one thing that brings joy to his stunted and miserable existence, and that's war, other people burning each other to death. Max Boot announced a new escalation in his new favorite war, the war in Ukraine. Listen to this. I think the key here is we have to
0: understand that we're we're making a mistake in the way that we think about the war because we keep thinking about it
2: as their war. The Ukrainians are fighting. We need to think about it as our
3: war. We're not providing Gray Eagle drones that the Ukrainians need. We're not providing as many multiple launch rocket systems as they need. All of us collectively can be and should be doing more because we need to understand this is our fight that the Ukrainians
1: are on the front lines of. It's our war. Hear that, people of of Dubuque, Bangor, Gulfport, Spokane? It's your war, not theirs. But the weird thing is, despite the fact that it's our war, Max Boot is still in the morning Joe studio wearing soft shoes. So despite this war's <laughs> world historic importance and our own personal ownership of it, Max Boot is not actually fighting his war. Nor, even more strangely, is Max Boot sending his own salary to fund our war. What he's doing is what he always does, which is promoting our war. And this is hardly the first war. In Boot's long and not at all varied career as a war promoter, he has demanded that American troops go to war in a dizzying variety of countries. Boot has called for invasions of Syria, an invasion of Iran, as well as a hot war against North Korea, even a war against Saudi Arabia. Quote, if the U.S. armed forces made such short work of a hardened goon like Saddam Hussein, imagine what they could do to the soft and Sybaritic Saudi royal family, Boot once wrote. And he was imagining it in great detail. Well, that didn't happen. We never invaded Mecca. Too bad. So Max Boot moved on to calling for the military occupation of Pakistan. (laughs) Pakistan. Nuclear on Pakistan. Let's occupy it. And then Somalia. Those were our wars, too. In 2011, Boot called for a war against Libya, and Hillary Clinton actually did it. And, of course, Boot was one of the main cheerleaders for our war against Iraq. Quote, once we have deposed Saddam, he wrote before the invasion, we can impose an American-led international regency in Baghdad to go along with the one in Kabul. To turn Iraq into a beacon of hope for the oppressed peoples of the Middle East. Now, that would be a historic war aim. Is this an ambitious agenda? Without a doubt. Does America have the resources to carry it out? Also, without a doubt. Sure, we can afford it. It'll be easy. Now, trillions of dollars and more than a million dead people later, how did Max Boot's prediction work out? Don't ask. He's got a new war to sell you. It's our war. This country set a record for overdose deaths last year. In response to that, the Biden administration is not reversing its decision to distribute crack pipes to crack addicts, nor are they slowing the flow of fentanyl across the borders coming from China through Mexico. No, they have a new drug war. Yesterday, the FDA FDA announced it's planning to remove virtually all nicotine from cigarettes. Now, nicotine is not the thing that gives you cancer. Nicotine is the thing. It's addictive, but it also increases mental acuity. But they're taking that out. According to the Wall Street Journal, the agency will also ban Juul e-cigarettes. Now, what happens when you get off nicotine? Well, your testosterone levels plummet and you gain weight, both of which the administration is for because you become more passive and easier to control. Vince Colonies has noticed this. He's a radio show host in Washington, D.C. And not a nicotine episode of Tucker Carlson today. Fascinating. Here's part of the conversation.
5: once I found out about the children's sexual rights, um, regime kind Kimberly of I Alice quickly author. kind of miraculously found other people who w- were aware of this and had been working on it at the global level for some time. And so I became uh, involved with some groups of people at the United Nations who were advocating for families and children. And, um, so when it, when, it's, when I went to the UN that I, it really came into focus. So my first visit there, um, was quite eye-opening. First of all, um, I heard people advocating for legalizing sex work, prostitution, um, people advocating for sexual rights for children. In one meeting I was in, they, they called pregnancy a career interruption. That's what they called it. And abortion was called a therapeutic interruption of pregnancy. So I kind of felt like I was in a different world? You know, who are these people that have these kind of seemingly radical ideas about pregnancy? Because, you know, most people think of pregnancy as being and childbearing as, as a joyful thing, um, but not so at the United Nations. And so the United Nations, you know, originally was established in 1948 with, with somewhat noble views, uh, trying to keep the world out of war and, and so forth. But the the thing is, and that I've seen with my own eyes, is that the whole thing has been significantly corrupted by the sexual rights campaign.
0: Wow, if you, can't, if you can't trust the United Nations, you can't trust Nick Puentes, you can't trust Uncle Ron Jeremy, I mean, who can we trust? Our, our idols are just falling down before us. Take care. Bye-bye.